You're listening to a podcast from GUT. Welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, UK, and current Visiting Academic Fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my role as Education Editor for GUT, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the March 2013 issue I've got, entitled MTNF Reverse Signaling Induced by TNF-Alpha Antagonists Involves a GDF1-Dependent Pathway Implications for Crohn's Disease. This work was conducted in Germany within the Christian Albecks University in Kiel. I'm delighted to welcome two of the senior authors of this paper here today, Professor Stefan Schreiber and Professor Philip Rosenstiel. Welcome. Inflammatory bowel disease is a major public health issue and is increasing in instance. TNF is a pro-inflammatory cytokine and a key mediator of gut mucosal inflammation and a target of the biologic therapies currently in use for the treatment of IBD. As an introduction, can you summarise the main points when considering the biology of TNF in the gut mucosa in terms of its source, its target cells and how it mediates pro-inflammatory action? Hi, this is Stefan Schreiber speaking. The um, uh, action of TNF at the moment, I think, or the value of TNF um, uh, in the disease, I think, at the moment is um, uh, accepted by everyone. But no more than 15 years ago, I think there was a big debate going on whether TNF or other cytokines are the most important uh, regulators in inflammatory bowel disease. The enormous success of a TNF blockade through uh, therapy with antibodies has then finally um, uh, brought light to this. And now everyone accepts that probably the secretion of TNF is um, uh, a key event in the pathophysiology. And uh, among TNF-secreting cells are many cell types. These are not just the cells of the adaptive immune system, also neutrophils, as we have shown in an earlier paper about 10 years ago in gut, uh, are important sources of TNF. And um, uh, the uh, TNF responses cells are also um, are representing various cell types. TNF receptors can be found probably on most cells and their various uh, biologic effects, pro-inflammatory effects, but also effects on cell cycles uh, and uh, cell metabolism, which are exerted by this cytokine. I think the main point made uh, by the clinical science is that the development of anti-TNF therapies has probably the single most important event in the therapeutic developments in IBD for the past two decades. It has really changed our way how we control disease now and I think has brought us a big step forward to improving the lives of patients, um, although it has not solved yet uh, the questions of how to um, stop inflammatory bowel disease. The title of the paper refers to reverse signaling. Can you explain this concept to us? Hi, this is Philip Rosenstiel. So um, let me explain this concept. Um, I think in the past uh, seven to eight years, it has become increasingly clear that uh, especially the TNF, TNF receptor family um, can also mediate signals not only by binding of the ligand to the receptor, but also vice versa of the receptor to the ligand. This can be done in a way that uh, either the membrane-bound receptor binds to the still membrane-bound ligand, which is then later cleaved off by the TNF-converting enzyme TACE, or even that soluble receptors or the therapeutic antibodies bind to membrane-bound TNF and then expert a comp complex signal. 
This is especially clear in TNF, as we talk about uh, today, but it's also clear in other um, TNF receptor family members, such as TAS ligand, CD30L, CD40L, OX40L, and others. For membrane TNF, the signal cascade has become a little clear. Um, it's involving a casein kinase phosphorylation of the membrane stalk or the, the cytosolic stalk of TNF, which then leads to a complex signaling cascade, especially in monocytes that has been shown by, by us and other groups, but also in activated CD4T um, lymphocytes. And this ligation then leads to complex signaling events downstream, such as calcium um, influx. Um, and other things, and leads probably, and that was one of the things that we're going to discuss today, to complex gene expression changes. The anti-TNF therapies are known to be efficacious in the treatment of particularly Crohn's disease, but what of its mechanism of action? What was previously known in this topic? Not all anti-TNF therapies are efficacious in Crohn's disease. Um, uh, for example, etanoceptive diffusion protein between a TNF receptor and FC fragment, which uh, binds uh, TNF very avidly, uh, is not effective in Crohn's disease. And also, the therapy development of various anti-TNF antibodies has shown that some of them um, didn't show the efficacy which would have been predicted from the affinity to TNF. And therefore, in the early days, um, clinicians were very interested, or clinical researchers were very interested in the mechanism of anti-TNF therapy. And um, in infliximab, it has been proposed that uh, the induction of T-cell apoptosis um, plays an important role in uh, the activity mechanism of uh, the infliximab treatment. A side effect uh, may be the induction of ANA, antinuclear antibodies, which um, has been also seen in the use of these antibodies, of infliximab. And then uh, another antibody came along, which was adalimumab. And with adalimumab, similar uh, mechanistic activities were shown. And on top of that, there were also further mechanisms proposed which could relate to uh, um, uh, the action of uh, TNF binding, um, um, uh, which I think were less well studied. The third antibody, which was um, studied uh, and um, shown to be effective in um, uh, the therapy of Crohn's disease was Cetalizumab pigol. And now suddenly we had an antibody which didn't show um, any apoptotic um, activity, which didn't also induce ANAs, and uh, yet still was effective. And at that point it became very clear that the mechanism of anti-TNF therapy was not known. And that was a starting point for that study. What was the aim of the current study? Down the line, what Stefan said, um, actually, now we had two kinds of uh, compounds that um, behave differently in induction of apoptosis, but still was um, efficacious. So, so the idea was now to create an overlay, a molecular overlay, and study the signaling mechanisms and the cellular programs activated by these two compounds. And there will be unique and there will be shared features. And we actually wanted to look at the shared features between these two anti-TNF compounds and then identify maybe decisive mechanisms that would um, at least give some light into the mechanisms of action um, that are shared by the two compounds. So may I add to this hypothetically, um, every of these um, uh, compounds probably regulates 500 to 1,000 different genes. And these experiments have been also done before with infliximab, 
and haven't brought anyone further or closer um, to the mechanism of action. And our speculation was, if we have two antibodies that are so different um, in terms of the clinical science, uh, we hoped that the overlay between probably each of them regulating 500,000 genes, that the overlay between these two antibodies would be limited. And we therefore would get a much closer idea about the true mechanism of action of anti-TNF therapy. You recruited a large number of patients. Can you summarize this recruitment for us, the patient groups you included, and outline what clinical material was collected? I mean, this is, um, uh, as I would say, a typical uh, clinical research experiment, which means that the initial observation was coming from the clinics, uh, as uh, we discussed before about these two different antibodies, that the um, um, uh, first studies were done in mechanistic models and cell lines. Then um, the attention turned to patients and large numbers of patients were investigated for the presence, um, uh, for example, of certain um, uh, genes being expressed, certain proteins being there. And um, large numbers of patients are needed for such an experiment because Crohn's disease is probably a heterogeneous disease. We know now there are more than 160 disease genes out here and uh, therefore probably they represent different groups of patients. So you need large numbers of patients to really um, create an experience and create data that shows you whether a factor is there and upregulated or not. And then um, further experiments were again done in vitro and in model systems and created questions that could be followed in the therapeutic experiment. The therapeutic experiment was studying patients around the therapy with anti-TNF. So before and after and divide them responders and non-responders. That, of course, is a complex task. Winning over patients means that you have to motivate them for clinical research, to spend extra time giving you, us the biological material, and also um, creating a system of um, data um, protection in which uh, we ensure the privacy of the patient's data and make sure that uh, the um, uh, um, results um, we get from the individual patients are not finding their way back into clinical charts or any um, can contaminate the patient's lives in any way. For the in vitro studies, including assessing differential gene expression in response to anti-TNF therapies, you used the THP1 cell line. What are these cells and why were these chosen? So the THP1 cell line is a commonly used monocytic cell line. So it's derived from the peripheral blood of a one-year-old um, human baby um, that suffered from acute monocytic leukemia. These cells behave quite similar to, uh, to kind of peripheral blood monocytes. They do have most of the receptors, including TNF receptors. They produce most cytokines, including TNF, TGF, and IL-1 beta um, and they, that was probably the most important thing, uh, has been used by several groups before to study on a biochemical way the, the phenomenon of reverse signaling. So we knew that reverse signaling in a way would work in these cells, and this is why we chose them. Moving on to the results, tell us of the significant points identified from the whole genome expression analysis, and what insight did this provide on the cellular responses to anti-TNF therapy? So maybe I start and Stefan takes over. So, so first of all, and, and that was previously said, uh, of course we identified numerous um, kind of transcriptomal changes or patterns that, that actually 
uh, was present in, 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 uh, when you stimulate it with one of the substances. And that, that was known before, and we expected some changes, and we again saw them. Um, and probably the most, most interesting ones that are outlined in the paper are the uh, down-regulation down regulation of anti-apoptotic um, and the up-regulation of pro-apoptotic um, uh, transcripts that we found. Um, but apart from that, there was also a, an overlay signature, and I think this is where we honed in and where we actually asked the question, what could be the combined um, probably therapeutic or mechanism of action signature? And um, that is um, referred to in, in the figure 1C, um, which has the common um, transcripts among that. And there, there the signature was less clear, and it was not the, the anti- and pro-apoptotic but it was a variety of different transcripts. I don't want to name them all, but um, th this is something that's very th that was striking. So the pro and anti-apoptotic regulation was mainly within fliximab. We didn't observe this too much in the in the sertolizumab pico, although we observed some pro and anti-apoptotic um, transcripts as regulated. But in the overlay, there was there was not a real overlap between. Um, or there was not a real program that tuned towards apoptosis here, at least not from the transcriptomal signature. And this is a study was started some five years ago, and I think it's important to, to point out that uh, this study reflects what we see now as a broad movement that you can do really um, uh, clinical science by genomic tools or that you really can derive science, reproducible science by genomic tools. Um, the microarrays, you know, the, a few years ago were giving us anecdotal findings and you saw these clouds which were annotated, these multiplicity of genes up and down and nobody was getting any kind of, um, as I would say, nourishment out of that. But now I think um, the technology has moved to a point where the science becomes so precise that um, the messages which you can derive from such an experiment really can kick off a whole series of um, uh, further experiments and then lead, um, I, I think, to deep insights, deep and reproducible insights. And I think um, this is important because um, now, um, as I feel the combination between cell-based uh, uh, investigations and clinical work at the patients become the laboratory in which science is created and no longer uh, just the animal model system. How did you validate these initial findings? As you see, the next move, which was coming after the THP1 cells, creating the initial hypothesis, was back to patients. And uh, figure two, I think, details that. Um, then, of course, we started to look at uh, GDF1 expression and a whole large series of patients. And we started with real-time PCR. And, of course, um, real-time PCR is just a tool looking at message, and message doesn't need to be translated in protein. And you see that we then did Western blood analysis um, uh, from, uh, and, and also ELISA. And for that, we used the opportunity which inflammatory bowel disease offers to the inflammation researcher, which is access to the, to the, to the diseased organ itself. And in these figures, you see that we could obtain large numbers of biopsies, both for inflamed and non-inflamed tissue from Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis patients, and healthy normals, which we then could compare. And so we could very quickly uh, validate the findings from the microarray, which I would um, uh, describe as an educated hypothesis at that moment, and validate that in patients as being disease-relevant. 
This led you on to identifying GDF1 last one transcript for an in-depth functional follow-up. Firstly, what protein does this gene code for and why was this selected to take forward? Maybe I start with the second question first. So, so the, the idea when we look through these uh, 20 transcripts that were commonly regulated is what kind of motifs do we see and do we see something um, that could be in the end also be uh, at least a hypothetical therapeutic target. Um, so when we looked at that, we saw um, transcripts encoding for cell cycle regulation, for mRNA processing, for nuclear transport, and there was this one transcript that was, uh, from the biological point of view, very interesting and very complex, but on the other hand, also encoded for a soluble protein that could be blocked, for example, by another antibody that could be designed. And this is, in the end, um, why we chose that, because it, it is very hard to actually modify other things that I said that are so basic as cell cycle regulation or something like that. But a, a soluble, secreted like cytokine-like protein could actually be modified, and this is why we ended it. Having said that, um, this was not an easy target because the it's called GDF-less-1, um, implicating that this protein either has two names or two proteins on the transcript. And this really is the case because this um, is a bisystronic uh, mRNA encoding both an isoform uh, or encoding both the less one protein, at least an isoform of the less one protein and the GDF protein on the same message with an internal ribosome entry site where the where the protein uh, proteins are produced. So um, the, the less one was long known as one of the earliest described longevity genes. Um, funny enough, first described in yeast as longevity assurance gene one. Um, this, this is involved in lipid metabolism. And the GDF1 was known as a protein, um, at least in, in the developmental, um, having, um, if, if this is not present during development, leads to severe left-right symmetry formation deficits, but only when it acts together with other proteins such as nodal. We then looked into expression into the gastroesophageal from the mRNA, what kind of proteins are expressed in, in the gut. And then we saw that more or less exclusively, the GDF1 is expressed um, in, in if you look at biopsies. So in the end, we thought this could be a very interesting protein to follow up. So we also skipped the less one part of the transcript and then looked for GDF. And, and that was the main reason behind that. You assessed the expression of GDF1 at gene and protein level at patient, in patients with Crohn's disease and explored its potential role in disease activity. Tell us more about what you found. I, I think the important part is, again, that we could reconstitute large parts of the regulation. I mean, figure two, um, as I already explained, depicts our um, uh, detection of increased GDF1 less one expression um, in uh, the biopsies of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, in figure three, which is the next figure, we then can reconstitute or uh, get, get, get an idea on parts of the mechanism. We can find that the uh, GDF1 expression, as we think, is largely regulated by GGF-beta, which is a well-known cytokine which has been previously implicated in the pathophysiology of inflammatory bowel disease. So we find increased um, TGF-beta levels by ELISA, both inflamed tissue from Crohn's disease and particularly inflamed tissue from uh, ulcerative colitis. We then can show 
that indeed the action of infliximab and cellulosimab pigol using peripheral blood cells is by controlling these TGF beta levels. And we can show with uh, intersection experiments with anti-TGF beta ex uh, antibodies that indeed this is the mechanism of action. And again, I would like to point out that these uh, studies are done with the relevant human material. So um, uh, the TGF beta studies are not just done in THP1 uh, cells, they're also done in peripheral blood mononuclear cells. And then by the end, we again home back uh, to the biopsies of the patients. And I think this is important again to point out that this is a uh, piece of clinical science which involves an interplay between um, uh, the laboratory model system and the in vivo material of the patients. The, um, I think, important connector which we then uh, create is that this links up to um, the L6 system, and Philip will explain that in more detail. But from a clinical point of view, I think this brings the two most important cytokines together. I think if you ask for my personal bet as a clinician, what would be the two master cytokines in inflammatory bowel disease, I would say TNF and IL-6, and I would expect the next big wave of uh, clinical therapeutic science through IL-6 uh, blocking um, antibodies or protein constructs. To put this in context, what was previously known of GDF1 in both normal cell biology and the pathogenesis of IBD, and what new findings are presented in this paper? Now, GDF1, so its growth differentiation factor 1, is uh, a member of the transforming growth factor uh, beta superfamily, and that has been described, as I said earlier, um, to be important in the left-right asymmetry or left-right patterning at least in the mouse, but it was then also later found to be um, that, that genetic uh, variants in that gene are actually um, associated um, with a disease uh, and heterotaxy syndrome um, that also leads to complex malformations and uh, left-right um, displacement of abdominal as well as thoracic organs. So uh, it was then later shown that, that this requires another factor that's called nodal, um, and this is a long-range interaction of, of uh, nodal and GDF1 that is required. So in other words, GDF alone is not able to make this, but it requires the interaction with nodal. That also left some space for, let's say, more uh, specific or more local actions of GDF that were completely unknown. Uh, GDF1 acts through activin-like receptors, um, like many of the TGF-beta family, leads to uh, activation of SMADs. Um, we have shown that also in that paper, but I think the striking finding that, that we showed here was um, two autocrine loops, and, and the first autocrine loop was the TGF-beta induction by infliximab, and that was, a, that was something that was known before, but... Um, it was shown both in allergy and also in Crohn's disease that, TGF, that anti TNF antibodies mediate the induction of TGF and that this is required for the therapeutic action of, um, of infliximab. In, in this case, in the allergy, it was a mouse model, and obviously the other one was then the human system. Um, so, but the secretion of GDF1 leads to a very complex signaling pathway um, with. Um, activation of SMATs, and we have shown that here, but also to um, a very strange activation of STAT3, which is one of the major pro-inflammatory transcription factors in IBD. And we have shown that there is another autocrine loop. So GDF1 
induces IL-6 secretion, and this then leads to STAT-3. So if you block, in other words, if you block GDF by an antibody, you block the, the secretion of IL-6 and the active, subsequent activation of STAT-3. So you have a multiple kind of amplification loops downstream of this here that are then blocked by infliximab. And that's, I think, the very interesting um, finding. Lastly, how may these findings impact on future patient care? There are two impacts this would have. The first one is that obviously GDF1 will become a target of its own right. So I think influencing GDF1 or therapies influencing GDF1 can be now developed. And this, of course, is a formidable task for the pharmaceutical industry in the search of a small molecule that could copy the activities of successful anti-TNF therapies. Um, the second point is that with anti-TNF therapy, there are many unsolved questions. For example, what is the right dose for my patient? It appears to be very clear that the one-size-fits-all scheme is not the question um, uh, to the dosing, uh, not the answer to the dosing of the anti-TNF therapy. In contrast, we find that um, starting with 100% responders at the beginning, say, of a year-long trial, about half of them will lose their response over the coming six months. And the answer clinicians give to that is dose increases. And there's a clinical wisdom out, which is not supported by trials because they have not been done, but there's substantial clinical wisdom around the world that some patients just need much higher doses of the anti-TNF therapy. And this could be obviously um, brought into, uh, say, much more precise use of anti-TNF if there would be a pharmacodynamic readout, which would tell you how much to give to a patient. And GDF-1 regulation could provide such a pharmacodynamic readout. And it could provide that readout not only to anti-TNF therapies, but eventually also to other therapies like anti-IL-6 therapies. And I think this is the true clinical value of uh, this finding and it could enrich the clinical use of uh, the anti-cytokine therapies. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank Professor Stefan Schreiber and Professor Philip Rosenstiel for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.